Hello and welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Did we have an episode yesterday? I wasn't here. Did you find someone to sit in? I, don't I didn't. I felt like I couldn't replace you, Kevin. Oh, well, that's uh, that's very kind of you. Thanks to the geniuses at USAR, I was stuck in lovely Charlotte for a long, long time. It took as long to get back from Kansas City as it would have taken me to fly to uh, Bombay, so I was not entirely happy with that outcome. Uh, but I did get to spend the afternoon and evening and early morning abusing them on Twitter, which always kind of you know, did their response. makes me happy. You know, I got a phone call from the uh, from an assistant to the CEO of American Airlines, who I was poking fun of on Twitter, but I missed the call, so I have to call him back after this and uh, and see what he wants. And I'm just going to yell at him and then write it up as a column, so that should be fun. Uh, speaking of things that are going to be fun... Everyone is expecting a big year for the Republicans uh, in the midterm elections. I'm not quite so sure of it myself. I never get that confident about these things. But of all the people who expect the Democrats to get uh, clobbered is President Barack Obama, who seems to think that this is inevitable and normal. Yes, and he used that word clobbered last night in Florida addressing a group of donors. And it's interesting because Obama's theory is that Democrats always do poorly in the midterms. And this is something that has gained currency recently. It's become almost an article of faith among pundits, they say. While, of course, during presidential years, then Democrats get the turnout. But during the midterms, then it's a much older, whiter electorate, more conservative electorate, which really doesn't make much sense. I mean, it's not as if there's a part of the Constitution that says, well, these people can vote during the midterms, but the others can vote during the presidential elections. In fact, it's a tautology. It says, well, we're going to lose the midterm elections, but that's because lots of people won't come out and vote for us. <laughs> well, yes, that's precisely how it works. What Obama really should have said is that Democrats don't do very well during the midterms when Obama is president. And if you go back to 2006 the Democrats really swept the board. They got a majority of the governorships that were up and an overall majority. They took back the House. They took back the Senate. And this was against a, a toxic background. Obama says that when there's a toxic background in D.C., whatever that is, Democrats don't bother to come out to vote. Well, 2006 was the height of the Iraq war backlash. It was the, the Jack Abramoff scandal, the Foley scandal, Tom DeLay was being indicted, it was just after Terry Schiavo, and there were the usual debates, heated debates about the minimum wage and about tax rates and so on and so forth. And then if we're looking at other examples of Democrats winning in the midterms in a toxic environment, how about 1998, when President Clinton was being impeached and the media was full of the Lewinsky scandal? Or Watergate. Or <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. they did pretty well during that time, as I recall. Uh, congressional Democrats. They did. They did. So you know, I, I think it's it's really interesting for two reasons. Firstly, is he does seem unable to note what went wrong, unlike say President Clinton. I mean, in 1994, Republicans really did very well with the Republican Revolution. They picked up almost 55 seats. They took back the Senate. But by two uh, by 98, rather, the Republicans did extremely poorly. In fact, they did so badly. I looked up this morning, that uh, they did worse than any other party had as an opposition party in a second term since 1822. Now, what do you think might have changed? Could it be that Bill Clinton, having been shallot, to use the president's term, uh, changed course? Could it be that his health care bill failed, people were angry, that his gun bill went into effect, 
that his tax raise went into effect, and then he moved to the right, signed welfare reform, and said the era of big government is over, and basically left the economy alone, which then boomed. And could it be that in this case, President Obama is the problem, and that it's not that Democrats have a problem per se, it's that Democrats have a problem while Obama is in the Oval Office? Yeah, you know, the thing about Obama is that um, it's obviously not a dumb guy. He's a very bright guy. Sure. But he's not as smart a guy as Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton's intelligence, uh, among other things, was partly based in the fact that he understood what was wrong with Bill Clinton, both as a person, which was a lot, and uh, as a politician, and he could self-correct. And, of course, that was also abated by his willingness to say or do anything under any circumstance if he thought it would advantage himself in his political career. Barack Obama does not seem to have that power of introspection. Um, he seems to operate in a kind of intellectual cocoon. You know, uh, I remember him saying uh, a while back that you know the main problem that he was facing politically wasn't with his his policies, but that he just hadn't told a story about them. Right. Like Barack Obama's problem in life is he doesn't give enough speeches, <laughs> which you know seems to me uh, unlikely to be the case. Yeah, and I think. Obviously, one has to recognize that there were press present, by definition. Somebody wrote this up, and he may just be putting on a brave face. I don't think he is, but he may just be putting on a brave face. But I would say that um, if you were talking to a progressive right now, they might well praise the president, and rightly so in some regards. If you're a progressive, you look at Bill Clinton, and you say, well, he failed to get his universal health care bill through in 1994. And... Barack Obama did not. And you would say, well, it might be worth losing the House in 2010. It might be worth losing the House in 2014 as a means of advancing the goals of progressivism and of the left. Obama may have done very well, certainly better, for example, than Bush did with the Iraq war as an overall means of advancing a goal. Barack Obama has been successful and the Democratic uh, Senate and House that were in place for his first two years in doing that. But there's a flip side to that, which is you then have to accept, but it's very unpopular and we're just going to have to absorb all of these losses because long term we think we need to get this in case. And I never hear that sort of acknowledgement from the president. It seems that he honestly believes that there's some insidious, magical, amorphous force out there that is stopping him from being able to win. And that's simply not the case. Like it's just the weather. Right. You know, just some weird On the off years. Yeah. Anyhow. That's the news from last night. And now we want to lighten it up a bit and talk about abortion. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I'll have a piece uh, on, I guess, Saturday morning about uh, abortion and, and some of the uh, myths and rhetoric attached to it. And something that I get a lot and something I got uh, today on, on Twitter from a reader I was writing a piece about Rand Paul, and he wanted to know why I didn't talk more about Rand Paul's views about abortion, because Senator Paul is very pro-life, and admirably so. And this particular reader seemed to think that um, his pro-life views were at odds with his typically libertarian leanings on things. And of course, I myself get this uh, sometimes as well. How can you be someone who is you know, so fa in favor of individual rights, rights and individual liberties and so many other circumstances? Right but not in the case of when a woman decides whether she's going to have an abortion or not. And this is one of the great instances of question begging in, in all of American politics. So people say, well, it's a woman's life, it's a woman's 
body, it's her choice. And if I thought that were true, if I thought it were just her life, and if so, I thought it were just her body, then I'm fine. Just like I think people ought to be legally allowed to smoke crack. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. But of course, that's really the question is, is it one life? Is it one body? And the more I've looked at the issue over the years, the more strongly I'm convinced that's not the case. So you know, I argue to people that I'm not pro-life in spite of otherwise being libertarian, but because I'm otherwise libertarian, and if we're going to have a society that's based on real protection of individual rights and real protection of individual liberties, it has to start with the fundamental one, which is the right to life. And um, you can't have a you can't have real freedom that's based on violence and violence done to innocent and defenseless parties. You just can't have it. Uh, the comparison between abortion and slavery and the abolition of the two is sometimes overdone. Uh, I would agree. I mean, there are different sorts of issues in, in important ways. But I think they're alike in the sense that they both pointed to a contradiction underlying our political order that eventually has to be sorted out. Yeah, and when it comes to debating, we talked about Rand Paul recently and we talked about this libertarian wing. There's a lazy shorthand for, I think, drug policy, gay marriage and abortion, which is social issues. Mm -hmm. And I've never been convinced that gay marriage and drug policy and abortion belong in remotely the same group for a number of reasons that I won't get into here, but abortion in particular, the question with abortion... And you, you see this, funnily enough, in how the hardcore left talks about abortion, which is to never call it abortion or to mention what it is at all, right. has successfully changed the question over time to things such as, well, do you want a child growing up with a mother that doesn't want it? Do you want a child growing up in, pol in poverty? Uh, how will this affect global warming? Um, crime. Do, crime and so on and so forth. And they're all interesting questions in the same way as would we be able to cut the welfare rolls if we murdered the bottom 5% of the population is an interesting question in a vacuum. But the ultimate question that has to be asked, and the only important question as far as I'm concerned, is do you believe that the child is alive? Now, I can respect people. I think they're wrong. But I can respect people who say... No, I do not believe it's a life. Therefore, I can also, in a perverse and sick way, respect people who say, yes, I think it's a life, but I think I'm much more important and I'm a vandal, at least for their honesty. Well, that is essentially Camille Polly's position. Right. That, yes, it's a life, and yes, I have the right to end it because I am woman, hear me roar, or whatever. Right, but this endless women's choice, women's rights, women's reproductive health, so on and so forth. There was an article that went around yesterday that got an awful lot of attention from the cognoscenti and it said well if a man if, if men were pregnant rather than women would we even be having this debate and there's immediately all of these glib responses no of course we wouldn't there'd be no debate at all well if the debate was is the child a human being it would be precisely the same debate as it is with women <laughs> yeah and that's you know a, sort of a typical uh not to not to go to all you know rhetorical analysis today but a typical sort of ad hoc kind of argument, well, men can't get pregnant, ergo, you don't get have an opinion on this. Or, you know, you're a white middle class guy, therefore you don't know what it's like to be 
poor and black. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem with this is that it actually translates into real political decisions, where you've got the president saying, well, I'm going to pick justices for the Supreme Court and judges for the federal courts based on these sorts of criteria, which are essentially ad hominem uh, criteria. You know, what sort of person are you? Are you black? Are you brown? Are you a wise Latina? Do you know what it's like to be a teenage mother? And that sort of thing. And this causes people to make really bad and dumb decisions sometimes. If your question is, you know, how do we apply the law or what should justice look like, it shouldn't matter the complexion or ethnic background or sexual orientation or whatever the person who's giving no. you the answer. It should matter whether it's true or false or right. plausible. And to use your slavery analogy, if we were treating the issue as solely the preserve of those who are affected then there would have been no white abolitionists and no white anti-Jim Crow activists after a certain point. Because although it started off in the American colonies that slaves were bought from Africa because that's where the enslaved people were, it did descend into a racially based system. And you were not going to be a slave in 1840 if you were white. Uh, are we to abolish historically the abolitionist leagues in the northeast because the people in them were not slaves and could never have been slaves and would never have been slave owners because they lived in states in which slavery was verboten? Of course not. Yeah, I think this is um, and this is again one of those you know, kind of fundamentally uh, fundamental cultural divides in our politics is that. Um, in the same way that you and I have talked about, conservatives think of justice as a matter of process, whereas liberals hate to call them that, progressives, whatever, think of it as a matter of outcomes. Uh, we think in terms of principles and arguments, and they think in terms of identity, mm -hmm. essentially, that, um, which is where you get things like disparate impact, you know, which is a crazy way of saying we can have one standard that we apply to everyone, and applying the same standard to everyone is inherently unfair yeah. because we don't like the way it turns out. So I think that um, maybe it's a bit too uh, too philosophical, uh, but at some point, well, we sh if it is too philosophical, we should bring in Jason Stortz and he can police us on it <laughs> and keep us straight, uh, who's our official uh, philosophy uh, referee. But, you know, this question of, of process versus outcome, whether it's a matter of justice or a matter of democracy or a matter of political legitimacy, I think is maybe worth uh, exploring at some point, but maybe not on a Friday afternoon. No, I think probably the last thing that I would ask you on, on the libertarian front where we started mm -hmm. is it is possible for a conservative or a libertarian who is opposed to gay marriage to give it up. They might be upset about it, they might be annoyed by it, but at the end of the day they'll get over that. And I think it's possible, too, for people to change their minds on drugs, or at least to say this is not an issue for the federal government, this is up to the states, let's have a slow process, let's have a referendum. It's not possible for a libertarian who believes that an unborn child is a life to change for political gain, is it? Well, it's possible. People do it all the time. But no, you're right, it is possible on that front. You know, in a sense, I am that guy. I'm not... I've never been extraordinarily hostile to the idea of gay marriage, but I think that... Um, having government redefine marriage, which is an older institution than the state and outside the state, is probably inappropriate. And that marriage really is essentially a male-female issue. I'm generally well disposed toward uh, gay rights and allowing people to arrange their lives the way they like to. 
Um, I can certainly see the kind of, you know, Maggie Gallagher argument, uh, the Robbie George argument against gay marriage, and in fact, Robbie George's argument seems to me fairly persuasive. But as you and I have, have talked about uh, at some length, it's not very much like abortion. You know, abortion is literally a life and death issue. Um, you know, whether gay people can get married in an age of no-fault divorce and universal illegitimacy and in which marriage is such a you know minor and degraded institution to start with is a pretty small issue. Right. And, uh, and when people on the other side charge that people who are opposed to gay marriage are motivated mainly by anti-gay animus, I think that that is unfair. It's not that it's entirely untrue. It's true of some people, obviously. Some people are... Oh, one of them just died. Fred Phelps. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and someone was talking the other day about, um, you know, protesting at Fred Phelps' funeral, and what they wanted to do was hold up placards that said, God loves even Fred Phelps. And I hope that's what happens, but... Um, right, they ignore him. But that's not what happened, <laughs> I don't think. Uh, yeah, that's kind of horrible. And, uh, man, that's a bummer of a thing to uh, end the discussion on. Should we talk about something else for two seconds just to <laughs> wash the taste of Fred Phelps out of our mouths? Well, we, we can reflect happily on it being Friday. Yeah. And, therefore, the day before the weekend. Well, I can tell you I was recently in uh, Kansas City, as so I was talking about getting back from my uh, flight. And have you ever been there? I have not. Kansas City is a lovely place. It's one of those underrated American cities because it's kind of in the middle and it's not close to very much. And it's partly in Missouri and partly in Kansas, which aren't two states that really tend to get anyone excited. But it's um, it's like sort of a manageable Chicago. Okay. Yeah, it's a small place with kind of a you know compact urban downtown. They've got dozens of uh, theaters there. It's got more theaters than any city I've seen outside of, of New York probably. And, uh, you know, a lot of music venues. And, uh, of course, it's famous for its barbecue and such things. So I was giving a speech down there at the Kansas City Public Library, which was kind enough to host me. And we had 200 people came out for it or wow, something that's like great. that. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So a thank you to Kansas City, which is a much nicer way to end things than what we were going to end it on. And we will talk to you Monday. That's very Beatles, isn't it? Thank you, Kansas City. <laughs>